Hello, church family. This is chapter 23 of Exodus. Uh, we were, This whole week we've been going through uh, Exodus 22 and 23, uh, kind of dividing it um, between these two mainly because uh, these two are these two chapters are laws and uh, ways in which the people are supposed to apply how they're supposed to apply the Ten Commandments and again these are all different scenarios and ways which they can see like practically what they're supposed to do um, and again as I shared before in the uh, I don't know which one it was but in the, that this is actually a means by a means of grace by the Lord to give the Israelites uh, specific scenarios and instructions on what they're supposed to do. Uh, the New Testament describes the scriptures as a tutor in that way, and they're supposed to give you uh, rules in terms of understanding it. And then, when in the New Testament, we're you know we're we're the New Covenant people, and the the law, uh, we don't need to fulfill these laws, but there are still some principles that I think we can learn from as we study the Old Testament. So as we get through this. This last portion of, verse, or of chapter 23, just by review, um, chapter 22, 1 to 15, they, these are laws pertain, pertaining to people's properties, like people, um, you know, things, uh, whether it's like a goat that's missing or, or people that lose, you know, um, have their material uh, taken. These are, there are certain rules that are supposed to uh, guard them from um, you know, stealing from one another or, or destroying each other's things and properties. Um, on Wednesday, we talked about these social and religious type laws, uh, chapter two, verse sixteen to t- chapter twenty-three, verse nine. These are things like, you know, you don't, you can't allow a, a sorceress to live, or, or, or people to, who have sex with animals, or, or people that uh, that uh, have idol worship. These are individuals that that are um, these are all prohibited by the Lord, and if anyone is caught doing these things, they are to be uh, destroyed. And then God gives them these commands, uh, so they are not supposed to, um, you know, keep. They're supposed to keep uh, themselves from falling into sin. Uh, and uh, twenty-three from one to nine, and these are all um, uh, ways in which you, you, people are not supposed to pervert justice. Uh, and you know, this is you know, back then there was no technology, so it, it can be tempting for those who want to destroy their brother or sister in the covenant faith. Um, by just making up a lie, uh, or, or slander them, or, or or falsify evidence, and God is saying that that is prohibited. Um, they're supposed to treat everyone with equal uh, with uh, equality. Uh, they're not supposed to treat one better than the other. They're all submit. They're all slaves at one point, and now uh, they're slave under to the Lord, not to Egypt anymore. And because of that, they are called to live in a way that is different in the way that they treat each other, the way they uphold righteousness. And they're called not to pervert justice. So when we get to these last, uh, let's see, uh, last portion from the middle of 23 to the end of the chapter, these are all laws pertaining to the land, like the actual land laws. Um, and how they're supposed to live in the land is, again, God gives them instructions. And if they are faithful, if they obey all of God's laws, then God will bless them. We'll see that as we can as we start this lesson here. Chapter 23, verse 10, it says that you shall sow your land for six years and gather it in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So this is a way, you know, thinking about Israelites back then, um, they're supposed to always trust that the Lord will provide for them. 
that no matter what happens, and Leviticus actually explains how this works, where um, they're supposed to work for six years, and the Lord will actually provide so much for them during those six years that they can actually go through one year without working. And there's a small way in which people do it, you know, in the week, in the sixth day that they work, on the seventh day they don't work, but then the Lord provides for them in those, on that sixth day enough so that they can survive uh, the seventh day into the next working week. And that's the same way with the years. The Lord was told them that they're supposed to uh, work for hard, work hard for six years. On the seventh year, they let the land uh, rest. And these and this is actually very fascinating because again, when we look at this, we understand that in agriculture people do it now, and there actually is a scientific reason for why letting the land rest is a good thing. But back then, they didn't have that type of science. God just told them to do this because it will, um, you know, this will give the land rest and the, let the soil kind of regenerate a little bit before they start planting again. And these are all ways in which God um, knows how nature works. And God gives them this, uh, this instruction so that they can ultimately trust the Lord. Uh, and in their trusting of the Lord, um, God will continue to bless them and give them food. Uh, verse 12, six days. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your fellow female and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Again, this is the idea of resting, that they're everyone's supposed to have a time where they can rest. Even the animals are supposed to rest. Verse thirteen. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Now this seems like a very strange um, command right after you know this law about you know, resting, but I think it's there because it's supposed to show that you know sometimes when they rest they might think uh, and attribute oh the, these other pagan gods are the one providing for us, and we know this and you know when you, you say First Second Kings you see that. At that point, Israel is given given themselves over to Baal worship. They think that uh, Baal is the you know is the rain god, and he will provide for them instead of the Lord. And God is telling them here, like, no, I am the one that's going to provide for you, um, and and do not call any name or of, of any other gods. Calling other gods by name has always been um, essentially connected to worshiping and, and obeying these false gods. And God is saying, the true God is saying, no, you must not do that. God is the only true God, and there's no one else um, uh, but Him. And the lesson that we can learn from these first three verses of this chapter is that you need to always remember to trust God. In everything that we have in life, the Lord provides. And this is why in in the Lord's or the sinner's prayer, where it says, like, give us our day, our daily bread. God is the one that's ultimately providing for you. You don't your your own job is not what provides for you. God provides you your talents and your job so that you can eat so you can live um, all your money all your friends all your uh, whatever you have that can get you through the day uh, they are all from the lord god is ultimately the one that holds you in his hand and is sustaining you and providing for your everyday needs so that's a that's one, uh, that's a lesson here i think that the god wants israelites to know to always remember to trust god and that's a lesson that we can learn even today as new testament believers that to, we need to always remember to trust him now, from 14 to 19, this is these the three, th these are three national feasts. They're these feasts that they're supposed to do every single year, three times a year, and they're all supposed to uh, point the Israelites to something in the past. That, you know, it's make them remember something. Verse 14, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for it came, for in it you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty-handed. 
Also you shall observe the Feast of Harvest for the first fruits of your labor from what you sow in the field, also the Feast of the Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your male shall appear before the Lord God. So all of these uh, event, all of these feasts here are supposed to point them to certain events in their um, in, in their in their time, in their history, and this will and it also this will teach them something about God. God doesn't give laws and rules, and especially in this case, celebrations, um, just blindly. It's not supposed to just be something that they just do for the sake of doing. It's supposed to point them to a greater truth. Right? That's why we celebrate communion. Communion does that. It's supposed to make us remember what God has done in the past through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and also pointing us forward to the meal that we will be able to enjoy with the Lord. Uh, and every time we do communion, you're supposed to think about those truths and be encouraged and be reminded that, hey, this life is not all that there is. Now I would even argue that every meal that you have with your friends, with your family, anytime that you eat, that the, the, as, as enjoyable as that meal is, there's going to be a time where there's going to be a greater meal, and that is with our Father, or with, with, with our Lord. Because be with Him, we can enjoy this meal with Him. Every meal should point you to that, to that future one, the better one. In a lot of ways, everything that we do here is a shadow of something that is to come. Baptism is the same way. Baptism is supposed to be uh, a symbol of you dying. Uh, you know, it's, it's a picture of you identifying with Christ, how Jesus went into the grave and came and come back uh, resurrected. And that's like us when we become a new believer we go our old self passes away and our new self is born and that's the idea of, of that it's also point us to uh to remember and that's that's the i think the point here and you know they're called to give their first fruits and everything um you know, to give god the best we will see it verse 18 <coughs> you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread nor is the fat for my feast uh, to remain overnight until morning so this is just like, uh, they're not supposed to um, you mix blood to anything that they're about to offer, and they're not supposed to preserve any food overnight, uh, and it's because things will get spoiled, and you know, they're called to not even eat blood, so it's, you know, life is in the blood, and they're not supposed to do stuff like that. Uh, and again, God is very precise in the way that he wants to be worshipped. Verse 19, you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Again, this is um, first fruit of the soil, meaning like these are like vegetables and fruits and stuff like that. Uh, I think sometimes people think it's only animals. So no, it's, it's anything, really the best of, you want to just give the Lord the best. Uh, and this last part in verse 19 is one that you, it shows up three times in the Old Testament uh, and it's always the one that people are confused by. And it took me a while to figure out what this means. What it says is, you're not to boil young goat in the milk of its mother. So there's a cultic back practice back then um, how we know this is because there's like different studies of other ancient religions and they actually have this practice. And this idea that when you boil a, uh, a young goat in the milk of the mother, it's not to eat the young goat, but rather you boil in the, uh, the mother's milk, uh, thinking that like, if you, you give him, give him like a little bath in the mother, mother's milk, that when that young goat grows up, then somehow that goat is going to be more fertile than, than if you didn't do it. Again, this is to show you, or even not the reader, or the Israelites here, that God is ultimately the one that provides for them. And not their cultic practices, not the things that they um, do, but everything that they have. All their first fruit is because God has given to them, and they don't need to depend on some sort of cultic ritual. God will give them um, the goats that they need, and, um, and all that they need... Uh, from surviving to sacrifices to him will be provided for all they need to do 
and to continue to depend on him, which is a lesson here from verse 14 and 19. It's to, you just remember to always depend on the Lord. The Lord provides all of these things in the past so you can remember him, and God will provide all the things you need in the moment and in the future, and you can always depend on the Lord. God is, knows our needs before we even ask for them, and when he provides for them, we should uh, be thankful to him for it and, and you know, offer ourselves uh, as a living sacrifice to him. Now the last portion, verse 20 to 33, this is all laws commanding uh, regarding taking the land, the conquest. Now, again, when I was planning this, I have no, I had no idea that in the global events now today that there's going to be this little conflict going on in the Middle East right now. So just know that what I'm speaking here is not intended to answer the things that's going on in current events, but rather to just think back of what was going on at the time. And I will also say that the Israel now and the Israel in the Old Testament are radically different. So don't look at what's going on here and whatever side you believe in. Think that, okay, see, the Bible says it's okay for them to do whatever they do. Um, this is not that. It's, it's, it just so happens that I'm teaching this during a time when there's stuff going on in the Middle East. But here's what's going on back then. Verse 20, Behold, I'm going to send you an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But I, if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and adversary to your adversary. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. So there's this very interesting part here where the angel of the Lord, this is, um, I think we theologians call this a, uh, theophany, meaning the appearance of God or appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I think that's true here because it seems that like he says, my name is in him, meaning that this person, this angel is, whatever he say is going to be exactly what God is going to say. And, um, and this angel, there's this uniqueness to him that he's going to actually be the one, not just dwelling among them, but leading and protecting them. If they trust him and they listen to him, then everything will be fine. If they don't, then things will go completely wrong. That's why in verse 24, you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in, piece, in pieces. So Israel will go in and destroy all of these um, pagan gods. Now in our modern day terms, we, th we see this as like ethnic cleansing, and that's actually exactly what it is. Now, I'll explain why that's actually okay in the Old Testament and not in the New. Um, but understand that back then, don't think these um, pagan, these, these Canaanites and Pezzarites and Hittites, don't think of them as these, as these innocent people that are just kind of like going about doing their thing and then all of a sudden these groups of Israelites came in and just like started attacking them and like, hey, what's going on here? These are wicked people. Uh, these are very wicked people. Israelites are not any, that many, but aren't that m any better, uh, but it's only by God's grace that they understand what God expects. But, you know, you got to think like these were like the Egyptians, the, the, how they treated like babies and slaughtering them. Th th these were just normal um, uh, pagan uh, people doing whatever they want. And um, gen this is actually a fulfillment of Genesis 15, verse 16, where it says that the um, you know the people in Canaan they haven't uh, <coughs> they haven't they basically uh, haven't reached the uh, God basically said that like they haven't reached the point where they um, that they uh, the wrath of God hasn't reached its peak yet. And it's supposed to show you that from this point in, in, jo in Exodus, from all, from all the way back from Genesis to Exodus, and all the way into Joshua, really, this is like 400 years. 
just several hundred years of God's patience and waiting uh, for the Canaanites and everyone in the land to repent. But they haven't, and God has raised up a nation to be there to basically judge all of these pagan nations, and they will be wiped out. And again, the, again, don't think of them as innocent because they have all heard of who Yahweh is. They've all understood what happened in Egypt, and instead of turning to God, which some of them will do, we'll see in Joshua with Rahab and uh, some others as well, even some of the people in Egypt left with the Israelites, but a lot of them did not, and, and they still leaned and clung on to their pagan gods. And, um, and this is why verse 25, you shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land, I will fulfill the numbers of your days. Uh, so then this shows that when they're faithful, when they're obedient to the Lord, God will bless them. There will be abundance of people and land and resources. They will be perfectly fine if they are obedient to the Lord. Verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so they will uh, drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the man, land may not uh, that the land may not become destitute, so the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out for you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. What this all means is that God has uh, has almost like a timetable on how He wants this win, how, how they're going to win. You know, like military campaigns. There's always like, okay, in in one week we want to achieve this this point, and then two weeks we want to achieve that point, three weeks, and then this is the same that God gave them this plan because. You know, the Israelites, they're, <laughs> relatively speaking, they're a small group of people. And if they were to go into this huge land and, and take it over all com uh, completely, they would not have the resources and the manpower to be able to take over the whole land. So that's why they were supposed to do it slowly, and God was going to protect them. And, this, and it would be easy, it, w it would seem like it's very easy if they just got everyone out right away. But there's a protection here that if they did that too quickly, they would lose uh, because the, the wildlife would just overwhelm them. So God said that he'll drive them out little by little until they become fruitful and take possession of the land. This means that during this whole conquest, you know, they were having babies. You know, babies were being born, kids were being raised, they would go, grow up, and then they, <coughs> uh, they would multiply as, as they keep going from one place to another, overthrowing all the different places. In verse 3, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You, also, you shall make no covenant with them or heed or with their gods. So, okay, I'll finish verse 13. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me and if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare to you. So the one that's interesting about here is that God has kind of marked out the territory for them. God told them explicitly, explicitly <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> God told them explicitly, here's how big your territory is going to be. It's not going to be like some sort of global conquest, like the way the, like the, uh, the, Islam, the Muslim people think. It's not going to be like that. It's just going to be, they're just going to be in this Middle East area, taking over everything here, the land of Canaan, and that's the only place that they have. They're not going to exceed that, but in that land, there's going to be a blessing to the whole world. And we know throughout the Old Testament that they fail to do so. Uh, they aren't able to um, achieve that, not because of God being unfaithful because the pe people were unfaithful. And uh, we know that they failed to live up to 
all this entire commandment. They start making covenants with other gods. They start uh, living amongst other people and, and wor start worshiping these other gods. And then and eventually they'll be kicked out of the land that God was going to provide for them. And why is that different from now? It's because back then, uh, they, um, the, what's different between now and then is that back then, God gave them a directive to go. And, you know, obviously they were kicked out of land because of their unfaithfulness. And we know from scripture that God no longer uses the nation of Israel to go and, to, and do conquests anymore. Rather, he uses the church to go spread the gospel and win people through, through Christ that way. That, that the covenant people are not regulated to a specific ethnicity or land, but only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, because, and the reason why that is, is because Israel now is not the faithful Israel back then. So they're not, there's like a difference in that way. Um, that the main difference is that, yeah, the, like the Israelites back then were supposed, to be, were supposed to be devoted to Yahweh, and because of their unfaithfulness in the past, they were exiled from the land multiple times, and they were only brought in. And even the land that they have is not exactly the land that God has promised them. But that will uh, one day be will be different when Christ return. When Christ return, yes, everything will, will uh, the, it seems like everything in the book of Revelation seems to indicate that the Middle East will be the essential focal points, but that will only come when Christ is, uh, will reign. No matter what's going on right now in the Middle East, there will be no peace until Christ comes and reigns and rules. And um, in that sense, we don't need to worry so much about what's happening there, but just to continue to pr pray and trust that the Lord will fix everything according to his timing. But the lesson we have here is that you need to be, um, you have to remember the judgment of God. See, God had, um, raised up to Israel, not because of anything that they, that they did was good, was be, but it's because of his promise they made to Abraham. And as he tells the people to go, they're also a means of judgment to all these pagan nations. God will sometimes raise up foreign nations uh, to judge wicked nations. In fact, Israel will eventually be that nation that gets overthrown because of their sin. You know, the Lord raised up the Babylonians to go and do just that. Um, God will see it fit that when a nation is so bent onto sin that there's no hope for them as a nation, God will deal with them. And there should be a sense in which we remember God's judgment. God is incredibly patient. Like as I said, Genesis 15, 16 shows uh, God waiting almost 400 years for these uh, Canaanites to, to repent, and they don't. And after that time, then God uh, uh, judged them based on their sin. And that's how it is for us, too. God is always patient. He's slow to anger. He doesn't desire anyone to perish. And yet, um, for us as Christians, we should be thankful and want to tell other people that. There may be people in your life now that is, um, that, is that blasphemes the Lord or hates God, Pray for them, share the gospel with them, and even in, in the hardness of heart, see God's patience and, and mercy towards them. And that should compel you to love the Lord more. Like, wow, God, I'm offended when, they, when these people hate you, but imagine, I mean, just a marvel at your grace towards those that are your enemies. And we should pray for that end, that the Lord will work in their hearts so that they can avert, they can stay away from the wrath that, is, that was meant for them because of their sin. I know this, this last week is like a whole bunch of information. I do hope that as you as we continue moving on this uh, book, uh, things I, I actually things will get a lot more interesting as we continue. Uh, as we're, we're like more than halfway through this book, uh, and I, I think in, in the future weeks I might cluster some of these lessons as well. Um, but yeah, the, I, I hope that this is helpful. It's definitely been fascinating for me as I read through this particular book and studying and, and you know, teaching into you guys because there are a lot of things I've never, I've read it, but I've never really thought much about it until now. So if this is helpful for you, 
uh, take care and have a great weekend.